All right. When we started our study on the tabernacle, we began by doing two hours on typology. And we determined the basic, the basic concepts we've established with typology is that the, the way we're going to approach it is that we believe typology, that anything can only be considered a type with direct New Testament support and authority declaring something a type. Okay? So we, we can, uh, that, that's how we're going to operate. But as we move forward looking at the tabernacle, we know that everyone else basically sees everything associated with the tabernacle as a type, right? Everything. Now, just make sure that we understand this, just, just, just to kind of finish that off. If we find, and this is just, I'll throw this out there so that you can think about it, because I know someone somewhere on the, on the internet is going to think about this at some point. If we find, let's say we find definitive New Testament proof that the tabernacle does serve as a type, does that support the idea that every single thing in the tabernacle, every cloth, every color, every type of wood, whether it's gold, whether it's silver, whether it's bronze, that everything surrounding it and connected to it is a type. Yeah. Some would say yes, even though Schofield's the one who makes an argument that you need New Testament authority. But so, so does everybody see that distinction? See, it's one thing to go, oh, wait, the tabernacle is a type. Okay, great. That to me just tells me in general tabernacle points to something else right that's that's one thing but people see that and they'll be like okay because it serves as a type now i can go through and go shittim wood well shittim wood represents this bronze represents this gold represents this and i don't know if just saying the tabernacle serves as a type is justification for all of that I'm gonna, I call that into question because the only way to me for that to work is not only do I need a scripture telling me the tabernacle is a type, what else would I need? Each of those things also support it. Because if I don't have the New Testament telling me what it's pointing to, then it's just up to me to just say, well, that represents deity. According to whom? That represents Jesus' humanity. According to whom? It may preach good. It may sound good. It may even lead to truth. But leading to truth under a false premise is still not a good thing from a hermeneutical standpoint. So what we're going to do when we start getting into the actual details, we're going to do, I'm going to do my very best to try to consider what others say, right? We'll put it forth as a hypothesis and go, well, this book or this book says this represents this. You can look up what other people say as well. We can make a list of three or four. And what we'll, guess what we'll discover probably relatively quick? That there's going to be three or four or five different views on what it represents. Now, right there is a good point to tell you what. The people are just making it up. Like if, 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 if everything has four or five different possible representations or what it's pointing to, then that means no one knows dogmatically. So that, But we will at least look at it, right? So on one hand, as we go through the study, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be at times, it, it may be a little frustrating, but, I, but in some ways I want it to be frustrating 
Because I want some people, I, at some point I want people to throw their hands up and go, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is just nonsensical, right? I want people to feel that because when you're a young Christian and the first time you hear that this represents this and this represents this, you're like, ooh, wow, that's awesome, man, that's awesome. And you're writing it all down. You're like, this is good. And then at some point, if you, if you continue to study the Bible, you probably stop and say something along these lines like, well, wait. How did they figure that out? Maybe not people in the pew, but if, you, if you're going to be a pastor or a teacher, you start trying to figure, oh, wait a minute. How did they figure that out? Because as a teacher, what do you want to do? Well, I want to be able to figure that kind of stuff out. So how do you figure that out? Well, I remember you know, reading different books, trying to figure it out, and I'm like, I don't know if there's a real, like, how do you, I know what you do. You go read other books and then you write that down and then you preach it. And then everybody's like, whoa, that was really good. Yeah, I got it from page seven here, page 15 here, page 30 here. So what we're going to do, though, is we're going to at least look at every possibility that people put forth. And then we're going to just say, probably in many of the cases, we're going to be like, we can't support that. We can't support that. And I know that's going <laughs> to that's gonna not be very fun, but it's got to be done. It's just got to be done, right? And all that, we, how, we need to do that just because how, the, the tabernacle takes up how many chapters in the Bible? 50. 50. Well, when something takes up around 50 chapters in the Bible, then it's our job to try our best to make sense of it, okay? So when we get to the details... That's where we're going to go. So we've looked at typology. We know we're headed to the details. But to get there, we're going to take a long and winding road, okay? I, well, I hope it's not too long. But we, I, I think there's some other things we have to do to get here, okay? So, because I just feel as a, anyone who reads the Bible, anyone who reads the Bible, there's just something about the whole thing that just seems so out of place to me. All right, so go ahead and turn to, I'm going to do this. I, I debated forever which way to start this. So I may do it one way and then regret it, but I think we're going to go to Exodus 24. This is the order I finally, well, actually, this is the opposite order that I decided on, but we're going to go to Exodus 24. We've read this now a couple of times, but go to Exodus chapter 24. All right, Exodus chapter 24, all right? We start in verse 9, all right? Exodus chapter 24, verse 9, right? Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his cleanness. Now, I think anyone just reading through the Bible, right, that kind of stands out already as like, what in the world is going on? Can we agree? All right, because all of a sudden they saw God, the God of Israel, right? And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also, they saw God and did eat and drink. And the Lord said unto Moses, come up to me in the mount and be there. And I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments, which I have written that thou mayest teach them. And Moses rose up. Uh, and his minister Joshua and Moses went up into the mount of God. And he said unto the elders, Tarry ye here for us until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. If any man have any matters to do, let them come unto them. 
Moses went up into the mount and a cloud covered the mount. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai and the cloud covered six days and the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. I think immediately when you're reading this, you have to admit this is some spectacular, supernatural things happening that are just kind of like not the normal way things have occurred, right? I mean, if you've been reading Genesis, this is not a normal occurrence, is it? Even if you read Exodus, it's not a normal occurrence because what's been going on for like 400 years? Yeah, they've been in Babylonian captivity, Egyptian captivity, and none of this kind of stuff is happening, right? Right? I mean, so, I mean, you had, you do have earlier on God calling Moses out of a burning bush. That's a little, but even that's nowhere close to this level of spectacular and uh, you're like, what is going on? Right? So immediately we know something is happening. Right? And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of Mount and the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got him up into the Mount. And Moses was in the Mount 40 days and 40 nights. Again, all of this just seems so what, where, what, why is this occurring? And then we have this, verse, chapter 25, verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly. With his heart you shall take my offering. All right, I'm going to read this again. Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every oil and, and for onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. Right? So we have all of these items listed that they're to take up, that they're to get from an offering. Yes, that's to be taken by people who are willingly to give, right? Then all of a sudden, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So all of a sudden, God wants a, he's instructing them to build a sanctuary that he may dwell where? Among them. Now, obviously, we, I mean, anyone reading the Bible, you have to stop and go, what happened? Right, what happened? Because if we go back, where was the last time God, in a sense, was dwelling among them? Yeah, go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Genesis 3, 8. Genesis 3, 8. Now we know in Genesis uh, and 1 and 2, God creates man and woman, right? Adam and Eve, right? We know he created them. We know something bad happens at the beginning of chapter 3. But we do know this, starting in verse 8, Genesis 3, 8. And they heard, and that they is referring to Adam and Eve, right? They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. Now, this does not give us specific details about how it all worked, but we know God clearly seems to be where? In the midst of the garden, meaning he's dwelling among Adam and Eve. That seems, I mean, I don't think there's any question about that. We, We may not understand all the details, but he's at least dwelling there. And then we know what happens, right? Clearly, they have sinned. What happens? Go jump down to Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent 
him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken, referring to Adam, right? Okay, and then look at this, verse 24. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of tree of life. Obviously, Adam and Eve were both driven out. And not only are they driven out, what is placed there to keep them from coming back? Got a sword, cherubim, right? Okay, they're, they're, they're kept from it. Now, at this point, God was in the garden and he sends who out? Adam and Eve. And from that point out, from that point forward, is God dwelling amongst people? Doesn't appear so, right? He may speak to them. The next time we even have anything close is in Genesis 11. What happens in Genesis 11? Look for a a specific verse that says something God is going to do. Genesis chapter 11. See if you can find it. Think it says God's going to, he comes down or let's go down. Yeah, what, what, do you, what verse? Genesis eleven seven, and it says, let us go down, let us go down. All right, meaning God is not where? He's not with them, he is somewhere, but he's only coming down for a specific purpose. So clearly, he doesn't seem to be dwelling with them. And then as you go on and on and on throughout Genesis, God God may manifest himself in a specific way for a specific thing, but he's clearly not dwelling amongst the people in any way, shape, or form, right? We've got sin, we've got everything going on, we got problems, we got all the stuff that happens through Genesis. And then when we turn to the beginning of Exodus, is God dwelling amongst them? No, they are in captivity. And then everything moves forward. God kind of shows up in the burning bush, right? Yes, okay. Call Moses. And then what happens? We kind of go through all of this. And then all of a sudden we get to what chapter that we just read a little while ago? 24 and then 20 or chapter 24 and then going into 25. Is it 25 verse 7, I think? Or is it verse 8 where he says, make a sanctuary? So let me... Eight, verse eight. You may want to circle that and write that verse down. That's really the key here. And you kind of like, what happened? Like, and, and, and why, what would we say if I just threw this out, right? I'm not saying we have a scripture that 1000% supports this, but why do, why would we say that God no longer dwelt amongst the people? Why, why would, what would we would typically say? Why was God no longer dwelling amongst the people? Because of their sin. Separates them from God. Well, all of a sudden now he's saying, make a sanctuary so I may dwell among them. Why now? And how does it happen? I know that when people study the tabernacle, they don't ask that question. Everybody just wants to do what? Just jump right to the tabernacle, right? Hey, what is the tabernacle? Okay, and then and then you start breaking things down. Like I could just grab one book right here. I could just start breaking it down. All right, um, here we go. Uh, the tabernacle consisted of three sections, the outer court, the inner court, and the holy of holies. The outer court, similar to a picket fence, was 150 foot long, 75 foot wide, and seven and a half feet high. 
A tent within the outer court was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. Tent had two rooms which were separated by a thick veil. And I could start breaking all of that down and everyone would start writing all of that down. I may pull up a chart or I may show a picture of it and we can all look at it and everybody could write down the measurements. And that's what you go to when you start studying the tabernacle, right? And then what do I do? I come along and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. These measurements, now now we do a little numerology. The numbers represent this. Okay, now what was this made of? You got an inner court and outer. What does that represent? Oh, that represents the spiritual life. You see, you're either, your Christian life, you're in the outer court, or you're in the inner court, or you're entering the Holy of Holies. I could go all day in all of the symbolism. That's where everyone goes. And I know that that's what I'm supposed to do, but I'm rejecting that approach. Because I, to me, and I know I've got to try to convince everyone listening, I think we need to figure out why and how is God now making a sanctuary so he can dwell among them when he's the one who separated himself from them because of their sin. Did the people stop? Are they no longer sinful? Right, so why why now? And how is it going to, to work? So I'm going to put forth some a possible, we're going to explore an answer, all right? I'm going to be borrowing from an article, well, actually two articles, but here's the two words I want you to write down as we attempt to try to figure out the why and the how of this, okay? You may not care, but I, I, for my own personal curiosity, I've got to understand why I'm reading my Bible and all of a sudden God wants to dwell amongst the people whom he threw out of the garden and he hasn't dwelt amongst them this entire time. I want to know the why and the how before I ever get to the, the actual object. Everybody wants to get to the object. The, uh, if the, uh, and if the object does represent something greater, the why and the how may even be a more important question, yes? Or at least that's my thinking, all right? You ready for two words? Number one, perpetual. Perpetual. Ready for the second word? First word, perpetual. Second word, parentheses. Perpetual parentheses. Perpetual parentheses. Now, perpetual uh, perpetual means what? Ongoing. Ongoing. So something is ongoing, perpetual. And then what is a parentheses? Okay? Typically, and especially when you're reading something, if there's something is in a parentheses, what does that mean? It's separate from the rest, right? All right, so we're going to look at a perpetual parentheses because in some ways, not that the parentheses, well, the parentheses may be somewhat perpetual, but there's, there's something that's perpetual and there is a parentheses that we have to deal with. And the parentheses is found in Exodus. Makes no sense to me. And the perpetual, well, it's, it deals with something that is also talked about in Exodus. So we're going to put these together. And I'm just using this because I just got to find a way to keep your interest to trying to figure out the why and the how. I'm interested in the why and the how. Most people won't be interested in the why and the how. But if I can get you interested in trying to figure out why he's talking about a perpetual parenthesis, then I can, I can explore the why and the how where you're like, what is a perpetual parenthesis? You see what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to figure out how to keep people interested while I can satisfy my own curiosity, okay? Does that make sense? All right, let's start with the perpetual part, all right? John Calvin, everybody knows John Calvin. He famously said, remember his famous quote? 
that the human heart, oh, now that's a famous quote, is a perpetual forge or factory of idols. John Calvin famously said, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. It is constantly creating gods and opposition to God. Now, I disagree a little bit with Calvin here, right? He says the human heart is constantly producing the idols. I believe the human heart, in a sense, is the idol in this sense. That the human heart does what? The human heart elevates self, desires self. The human heart is all about self. The human heart elevates itself above God because the human heart is corrupt, right? The human heart is corrupt. So whenever I talk about idolatry, and I've done a lot on the podcast and I've done it here, my approach to idolatry is different than everyone else's approach. Most people's approach to idolatry is you have to identify the idol, right? And the uh, idol is always something external, right? It could be your career. It could be your education. It could be your family. It could be your, your physical appearance. It could be money. It could, like, it could be anything. It could be a relationship. It could be anything. And, then, and what we typically say is an idol is anything we put before God. But I think the idol is us. Because the idol is we, uh, we our sinful heart puts who before God? Us, all of those other so-called idols are simply what? Those are simply things that we look to to satisfy the real. Think about it. All those things that we call our idols are really things that we look to to worship. Those things we want them to worship us, right? They want um, we want all those things we want because they elevate us. That's why in a in a roundabout way. Now this this is true. This is true probably more than we want to admit. Sometimes when we look at relationships and we look at other people, we may talk about, oh, we love them. And we we tend to look at other people only in regards to what they can do for us. Right? So we're we're the real problem. Calvin puts it as the as the heart produces the the, the idols. I'm like the heart is the idol that's elevated above God. And we look to every, we look for worshipers. We look for worshipers to serve us. I know that picture doesn't quite fit, but okay. He goes on the, this idea about Calvin. Since the fall of man in Eden, idolatry has been a perpetual problem. Now I will start that idolatry started where? In the garden. And again, some people will say, what was the idol to Adam and Eve? Everyone says the tree, and I disagree with that. What was the idol in the garden? Themselves. They elevated themselves above God, and the tree was simply that which was pleasant to the eyes. Right? It was something that was worshipped them, satisfied them. Right? So they, I think, are, I, that's, the, that's the way I perceive it. And that's even the, they were like that even before they had a sinful nature, right? Right? So it was, uh, the, uh, since the fall of man and Eden, I, idolatry has been a perpetual problem. It was idolatry, the entertaining in one's mind of a false god, which led Adam and Eve to disobedience. I will say they became the false god. 
that they themselves put themselves before God. Satan tempted them to defy God who is by, who, uh, who is by presenting them with a God who isn't. And I will argue, you know, Satan just convinced her to be God, really, in a roundabout way. Hey, if you eat this tree, you will be like God, knowing good from evil, right? I, I think that's the, the idea. And since that, for the, uh, since that first sin, humankind has faced a perpetual onslaught of the temptation to idolatry. I will say since that first sin, humankind has lived in a state of perpetual idolatry because we elevate ourselves before God. Again, I, I would change some of this. Calvin wrote, I quote, every one of us is even from his mother's womb an expert in inventing idols. I will argue every one of us, even from his mother's womb, is an idol. We, we are the idol. We are the false god. We are it. Everything else we seek, we are, we, think about it this way. If we say God seeks worshipers, we are, are gods who seek worshipers. And what are those worshipers? Everything that pleases us. I, I know we don't like to admit this. I think every relationship is simply we seek worshipers. We seek people that will do what? Make us happy. Meet some kind of perceived need, right? Because it's us, 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 us. It's very difficult to live a life where you're placing others before self, Right? It's very difficult to be, because even sometimes, even when we look sacrificial, even sometimes when we look like, oh, look how wonderful that is, they put the other before themselves. But sometimes they're only putting the other person for themselves, for themselves. And I know that, 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 that nobody wants to admit that, but it's just true. It's just true. People come to church for what reason? Well, to get something, right? Uh, we all try to say we come to church to, because we want to worship God. And we're all here. Give me a break. We're here for what reason? For self, right? There's something we want. And what happens when someone's perceived need is not met? They're gone. You're here to serve me. And people, people say, no, 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 I'm here to serve God until, until your need is not met, right? Again, I, I, I've talked about it my whole ministry. Do you think I get phone calls constantly going, what can I do? How can I do more? What can I do to help? How can I serve? How can I support? How can I help? No, when I get a phone call, it almost inevitably, inevitably is going to be, I don't like something, change something, do something. Because guess who, guess who is God? Self. This is true of, come on, this is true of all of us, right? All right, maybe, maybe I don't think so. I think it's true of all of us, all right? Um, it is not without significance that the first two commandments confronts our tendency to idolatry, right? Do we not see that in Exodus 20, right? 
Okay? Our text uh, for, well, one of the texts that would highlight this problem um, of, of idolatry, we can also see this if we jump to, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 really quick. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to jump around here a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, this is going to connect to Israel. It's going to connect to Moses. It's going to connect to Exodus. It's going to connect to a lot of this stuff that we're looking at, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And we're all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual meat. And did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither ye be idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to, pl- to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand, right? Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for end samples, uh, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There is no temptation taken but you, but which is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape and you may be able to bear it. That's one of the most confusing, confounding, make absolutely no sense verses in the entire Bible. I will never ever, ever comprehend that under any circumstance. But okay, verse 14. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. Idolatry, meaning that idolatry was a problem going to the garden, and it's a problem all the way when you get to the New Testament. It's a perpetual problem. Idolatry is a perpetual problem. Idolatry is where we want to be the center where we want to be the one exalted, where we are the one who wants to be elevated. And we seek and, and we will even, I hate to say it, in many cases, we are the idol that we even want the creator God to bow and serve us. Many Christians, we look to God as nothing more as something to serve whom? Us! I mean, come on, would you serve God? Would you worship God? Would you, would you pursue God? If God was not going, it was God was not going to do one positive thing for you. If God said, Hey, worship and serve me because I'm your creator, but you still go to hell. You probably wouldn't even be in this church this morning. You probably would say, forget it. We, in many cases, we pursue God for one reason. Self-preservation. Self-benefit. Because idolatry is perpetually a problem, right? There is, there is the perpetual problem, right? Everybody see that? What's the perpetual problem? 
idolatry. Now, since, now here we go, since the perpetual problem is idolatry, then how and why would God then want a sanctuary where he's going to dwell amongst people who are perpetual idolaters? Because up to this point, he, he is, he's, been, he's judging, he's destroying, and now he wants a tabernacle in the midst of them? It seems odd and weird, and it doesn't make any sense. You think God would want to have nothing to do with them, right? So why and how is he, how is he going to pull this off? Okay, now the parentheses, there's the perpetual. Now the parentheses, all right? Typically, you know what a parentheses look like, right? In writing, they are put around a word, phrase, or sentence in a piece of writing to show that what is inside them should be considered as separate from the main part. We got that, right? Okay, all right, now, this is very important because there is an argument made by many, that there are a number of chapters in Exodus that should be considered a parenthesis that is separated from the other part. And possibly within this parenthesis, it's going to deal in some ways with the perpetual problem, but it may offer somehow an explanation to the why and how the tabernacle ever shows up in the first place. All right. Now here I'm going to rely on an article that tries to kind of put forth this hypothesis. Now their, their approach is a little different than mine, but we'll, we'll start with them. All right. Now, God had summoned Moses to Mount Sinai on several occasions. Most significantly, when he revealed to him the Ten Commandments and the case laws. Do we not see that in chapters 20 through 23? You can look if you need to. Exodus chapter 20 through 23. After that... Moses descended to give the, uh, the, give the book of the covenant to the children of Israel. Upon receiving this, they made a bold, and I believe, now they say a sincere commitment. Remember, we have lots of different interpretations of this. Look at Exodus 24, 7. Exodus 24, 7. What do they say in Exodus 24, 7? All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. Now remember, how did Schofield approach that? That, they, that this was a failure. That they were basically moving away from the covenant of promise and had now entered into a covenant of law. That they were, rege- or the dispensation of promise to the dispensation of law. So they see it as a negative thing. This article says he believed the people were sincere. They may have been sincere, but Schofield say they were sincerely wrong. Okay? Of course, included in this declaration of faith was a commitment to obey the first three commandments. They were off to a good start. Moses was then summoned to, again to the mountain, where he would remain for the next 40 days and nights. Look at 24.9. I believe it's 24.9. Does that happen in 24.9? He goes up, right? Okay? And then he, remember, we talked about here, he's going to go up here. Remember, this whole situation is just kind of bizarre because he's already been with God and he came back down. Now, why is he going back up, right? Seems kind of odd, okay? Meanwhile, the people remained at the foot of the mountain. Aaron and her have been charged with basically taking care of any issues that might arise in his absence. See 2414, which we read the beginning. You see that? Now, immediately, so Moses has been with God. He comes back down. 
And now he's being called back up and you're kind of figuring out what, what is happening here? Like, why, why is he being called back up? All right? During this time, God revealed to Moses his plan for the construction of what? The tabernacle. All right? We see that 25, 8, and 9, right? Everybody see that? And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I shew thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. So clearly this is a significant thing for him to be called back up now to be told this. Now, what was the first thing that people are given? The law. Now God is giving him instructions for a, a tabernacle. All right, so far so good. All right, um, so during this time, God revealed to Moses his plans for the construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings, as well as an appointment of the priesthood. And this seems to go from 25 to 31. Do you agree that that seems to cover that section? 25 to 31? Do we feel comfortable with that? Yep, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the garments, the items, everything's being laid out. Agreed? Okay, all right, this, and now they go on to say, I'm, I'm adding their words now, this was a glorious period in the history of the nation. God was doing great things and re- revealing great things while the people responded with great commitment, right? Now, I think, I think you could say it does look good, does it not? God gives them the law, and they're like, we're going to do it. And then, and then Moses goes back up, and he's getting, wait, you're going you're gonna to build a, 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 a sanctuary amongst the people? He's got to be thinking, this is pretty crazy, right? This is amazing. Because up to this point, has God been dwelling amongst them? No, something significant is going on here. So it does look glorious. It lo- does look awesome. Yes? It, it does look uh, great. It, uh, if, now this is very important, if chapters 32 and 34, if chapters 32 and 34 were taken out of the book, there would be an unbroken flow from chapters 25 through 40. If you take 32 through 34 out, just remove them, just remove them, the argument by many is that there would be a, a, um, if chapters 32 and 34 were taken out of the book, there would be an unbroken flow from chapters 25 through 40. That 32 through 34 just seemed like, why is it here? All right? Now, even Schofield, he doesn't say where it stops, but guess what, guess what he, lab- he puts at uh, chapter 32? You ready? Chapter 32, Schofield, 1917. Parenthetical. Parenthetical. Yeah. So 32, 33, and 34, most believe what in the world is this here? It's a, it's a parenthesis. Like you could just throw it out and you would have an unbroken flow because what has been going on? The instructions, right? For the tabernacle. And then all of a sudden, 32 through 34, you're like, wait a minute. Is it the instructions for the tabernacle in 32 through 34? No, it's got to be something different, right? That's why it's considered to be parenthetical. Does everyone understand that? What happens in 35. Now you're right back to rules and regulations and, and instructions, right? So 32 through 34 is considered by many to be parenthetical. If anyone listening online disagrees, that's perfectly okay. 
If anyone here disagrees, that's perfectly okay. I'm just going to put forth this hypothesis, right? Okay. So far, so good? Any questions? All right. So let me read this again. If chapters 32 through 34 were taken out of the book, there would be an unbroken flow from chapters 25 through 40. And chapter 35, the theme of the tabernacle continues with the record of the tent's construction according to what God has revealed. Can Will everyone agree with that? That in chapter 35, it returns back to that? All right. So, so but chapters 32, 34 do exist in our Bibles. There's, they are there. And according to this source, they form a parenthesis that interrupts the flow of the book. And it's a parenthesis caused by the perpetual sin of idolatry. It's a parenthesis caused by the perpetual sin of idolatry. See why I called it the perpetual parenthesis? Yeah, all of a sudden, 32, 34, we're idolatry. Now, I'm not saying that this is going to resolve all of our problems, but I think that what we're going to do is we're going to look at chapters 32, 33, 34. We're going to even, we're going to throw in 35. I know it's outside of the parentheses, but we're going to look at 32, 35, and we're going to look at these chapters to try to figure out maybe within these chapters, we can figure out the why and the how of the tabernacle itself. Because it interrupts the flow completely. All right? And, and they say, uh, they say this, sadly, this was not the last time that such a parenthesis in the history of Israel would be experienced. Idolatry was and is a perpetual problem. They experienced idolatry as a reoccurring problem. In the sense, idolatry in the nation became a perpetual parenthesis. I will say idolatry has become a perpetual parenthesis for every person, for man in general. Right? Because if you think about it, Genesis starts with God dwelling where? In the midst of them. How does Revelation end? Find me in Revelation where it seems to indicate God dwelling in the midst of everyone. See if you can find it. Something that would indicate, something that would be somewhat similar to that. Something that would indicate it. Something similar language. I know it paints a good picture, but I want to see if we have some kind of scriptural support for it. So in Genesis, God is dwelling there, and then in the book of Revelation, as it all wraps up at the end. Okay, okay, that's Revelation what? Revelation twenty-one three. Okay, may not be perfect, but I think it, it'll get it'll get us pretty close to what we're looking for, right? Everyone see Revelation twenty-one three? Everyone there? 21.3, all right? We see first in verse one, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away 
And there was no more sea, and John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned of her husband. And I heard a great voice of the heaven saying, Behold the... Oh, now we have a tabernacle. Oh, isn't that not kind of interesting, right? The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So this puts... Then God right back in the midst of them. Listen to me. Listen, 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 listen. Genesis, God is with them. Revelation, God is with men. Everything in between is a parenthesis, a perpetual parenthesis. And guess what? Everything in between that is filled with idolatry. The exaltation of self over God. Where we, as many gods, look around finding everything we can that will worship and serve us. Now, we know that's how it begins and what messes it up in the beginning. Our man's sin, right? And then at the end, how can God dwell with them at the end? Yeah, glorification, right? The ungodly are judged. And now every then there, the sin nature is removed. So if God can dwell with people at the beginning because they had not sinned, and then once sin happened, he throws them out, he can dwell with them in the end, glorification, then why in the world is there a tabernacle here in the middle? Right? So maybe 32 through 35, that parentheses somehow demonstrates or somehow pictures how a holy God can dwell amongst sinful men. Am I saying we're going to find the answer in 32 through 35? I don't know, but I can guarantee you what, you know what we're going to do for the next hour? We're going to try to figure it out, okay? We're going to try to figure it out. But I think it's somewhat, I don't think we can just ignore that parentheses, can we? Or 32 to 34 is the actual parentheses. I always throw in 35. I know that's not accurate, but we're going to look at 35, Okay. All right, 32 through 34 is clearly, I think that's where the parentheses is. Because when you get to 35, you can see it returns back to the subject, right? Does everyone, everyone agree with that? Okay, I'm going to argue 32, 34 is the parentheses, okay? So, but you see the picture that's kind of being established? Genesis, God is dwelling where? In the garden. Sin happens, they're thrown out. Revelation, where is God going to be dwelling? With man. What's going to be removed? Sin. In the meantime, it's a parenthesis filled with human, human beings who think that they are God. All right. But in the midst of that story, we have God setting up a tabernacle to be among men. Now, obviously, that tabernacle and that temple goes away, right? Clearly. What? But why establish it in the first place? Now, is it possible... That the establishment of the tabernacle in Exodus was to foreshadow and to picture how God would ultimately fix the problem so that he could dwell with men permanently. Is it possible that the, the, the parentheses is there to demonstrate how God would ultimately fix the problem because in John, it says that the eternal Son of God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And that Greek word means to tabernacle. So is it possible that the original tabernacle 
was to picture how God ultimately would tabernacle with us, but it was going to require a different tabernacle to fix the problem. Now, I, I'm not saying I've got it figured out. I'm not. Don't, 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 don't walk away going, oh, he's got this all. I'm not. I'm putting forth a lot of hypotheses here that we're going to figure out. So for the next hour, it's chapter 32, 33, 34, 35 of Exodus. All right? To try to establish the why and the how. But is that a kind of a cool picture? We're in a perpetual parenthesis of idolatry. There we go. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, as we begin to try to take this apart and understand this, Lord, I hope you allow, just give us a heart and a desire to dig in and do the work that's necessary. Lord, we know that everyone in this room and everyone listening, that we're all guilty of perpetual idolatry. We put ourselves before you. And Lord, if we are even remotely honest, we sometimes look at you to worship us. And to admit that is not an easy thing but it is the truth of the human heart. And we ask your forgiveness. And we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, who in him and through him is the only way we can ever dwell with you correctly. And it's in his name we pray. And God's people said,